It is time. Beads of sweat form across her forehead. The encroaching rhythms of strain are coming. She can feel it beginning. The slightest hint of tightness across her back and around her waist. Miles back, it was just a hint of a pain. But this keeps growing like a small storm cloud on the horizon. She can feel it forming and taking ground on her. Joseph is distracted by the urgent need to find a place for them to rest. She can sense the concern weighing on him like a yoked ox. She's found it harder and harder to hide this intense pain from him as it keeps coming and growing and pushing her beyond what she feels she can handle. One magi massages his neck, tired of Craning's guyward, while the other two converse excitedly behind him. The new star is burned into his corneas, a hazy purple dot that persists as his vision sways from the camel's movement. The birth of a star means the birth of a king, and each of them had felt compelled to offer tribute. King Herod's messengers asked them to go to Bethlehem and tell him what they saw. They crest a hill, and their lodestar hangs low and bright over the little town, humbler than the Magi expected. All of them could feel it, as sure as the pull of the earth beneath their feet. If a king is born in a ramshackle village such as this, something truly wondrous shall come to pass. There he sits, that cold, vacant room where his dark thoughts wander. The huge, hewn stone walls do little to keep away the surmounting threats. His gold throne offers no reassurance. His rule is slipping. People no longer fear him. Factions now speak publicly against him, spreading rumors of a new king rising from the line of David. Hopeful stories being told in public squares, synagogues, and at dinner tables. Are the prophecies of old coming true? Seeds of revolution grow, ready to turn on this godless man who stole, killed, and destroyed. His closest advisors, even his own family, form treacherous plans. Like snakes waiting to strike, he is truly alone and afraid. Only one thing he possesses now, power. He must act. It must be swift. It must strike fear. It must send a clear message to all. Herod is king. The night wind bites through the shepherd's robes, callous, cold, chilling. He is on his favorite boulder, giving him view of the town below. With the corner of his eye, he notices new light to his left. He creeps higher up the hill to look and sees something majestic, terrifying, and glowing. He feels the light warm his cheeks. Do not be afraid, an angelic voice speaks in the quiet. Light gently pulses as the messenger continues, telling him the Savior, the Messiah, is being born in Bethlehem, and that he will find the king lying in a manger. Suddenly, blinding light shines in the area. Squinting and shielding his eyes, he glimpses a multitude of angels above. A thunderous cry of praise rings out as the voices exclaim, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. This cry of worship echoes through the hills and over the fields below. A warm wind blew into a building on the outskirts of town, built into the side of a natural cave from which the braying of livestock could be heard. The innkeeper rubbed his temples, sitting on the edge of his cot. The census brought many guests, more than he was equipped to house. There came a knocking at the door. Maybe if he kept silent, they would think the inn abandoned. The knocking grew louder, faster, more desperate. It was accompanied by muffled screams. What now, thought the innkeeper as he trudged to the door. The denial left his lips before the door was open. He saw a man and a woman beside a donkey. The man haggard with a pleading look in his eyes. The woman was in labor, the pain coming out in short gasps. She was the same age his daughter would have been. The innkeeper showed them to the manger. The pain is now evident. She hasn't needed to say a word. He knows. She can see the desperation in his eyes, and she knows the man in the shadow of the doorway sees it too. Pointing to his stable, she doesn't even wait for his words. She just begins to move her body, willing it to get there, to fall on the prickly hay. She doesn't care how loud she's being. She doesn't care if there are animals or the whole city watching. She just wants this pain to stop. And the only way that can happen is to counter that pain, now as powerful as ocean waves at high tide. 
tighter and tighter her body gets as she presses against it, holding her breath to push the tightness that's only desire seems to be her end. She fights to push the pain out of the center of her body, through the bone and muscle to the pores of her skin. She pushes with every single ounce of energy she has left. She only has time to breathe frantically, to gather another breath and push again against this death, against this that wishes to finish her. The pain turns to a sharpness, like a knife cutting through her. But she knows that's the way through. There's no backing out. There's no turning around. The blade is the way out. So with the last drops of hope and energy, she presses against that and pushes and breaks and tears until she is free. And so is he. like to read to you from Isaiah chapter 9. The prophet said, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee and the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. It says a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called, let's read it together, Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you that you are so faithful and so good to us. We thank you that you incarnated yourself and clothed yourself in flesh and took on vulnerability, that uh, you are God couched in vulnerability. We're so honored that you would put yourself in this position for the sake of meeting us where we are. Lord, help us to live our lives for you. Help us to love you and to walk with you faithfully. This Christmas, would you make yourself known? Be, Lord, where it says of your governing there will be no end. You would bring peace to the world. Be with the world today. We lift up our prayers and our voices for all of the needs and all of the countries and all of the places because you're bigger than all of this. Your word says that heaven is your throne and the earth is just a footstool. God, you're so much larger than any concern or problem that we have. So we just say to you, we release it to you and we ask that you would meet the needs specifically that are there. God, we love you and we give you glory and we give you honor in Jesus' name. And everyone affirmed by saying, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It really is an honor to worship with you today. It's an honor to worship with you if you're here, if you're online, if you're part of our community in Kerman. We're excited that you're here. Isaiah chapter 9. There is a lot in here. It is a beautiful prophecy 
about the one who was to come. He's the one that we call the babe of Bethlehem or the Christ of Christmas, Christmas. And Isaiah chapter 9 is all about Christmas. And what Isaiah 9 really does is it teaches us two things. Well, it teaches us more than two things, but there are two things that I'd like to point out to you. First, it tells us how are we to handle the dark. That would probably be the first message of Christmas to my mind. And if you study Isaiah chapter 9, if you look closely, you're going to see it not only tells us how to handle the dark, but it tells us how to open God's gift, how to open a gift. Now, what's interesting about these two things is that both of these things are things that we've needed since we were little kids. Is that right? We've needed to know how to handle the dark, and probably when you were a kid, you needed to learn how to open a gift. In fact, if you didn't open the gift right, your parents probably told you so. I want to start today, though, with the first problem that Isaiah speaks to. How are we as human beings supposed to handle the dark? And here's what I mean. I want for you to notice here in this passage of Isaiah how many references there are to dark. For example, look at verse 2. It says the people, right here coming up on the screen, the people are walking in what? Darkness. And then it goes on to say the land, it's not just a land, but it's a land of deep what? darkness, but a light has dawned. Now, I got to say, as a kid, I was super scared of the dark. Is anybody with me? It was humiliating. It was embarrassing because I couldn't walk down the hallway. I couldn't go to the bathroom. I mean, I was six, seven, 16 years old, I mean, and I, 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 I was just afraid of the dark. In fact, it was well into, I was probably a teenager. I was still using a light night, a, a, a nightlight. Don't, don't judge me, but I was using a nightlight. And uh, I'll never forget, I used to go stay the night at my cousin's house. I grew up with a cousin. He's no longer with us, but he was three months older than me. His name was Sean. We were inseparable, Shane and Sean. And they confused our names a lot. You know, I was Sean and he was Shane and all of that. By the way, if you ever call me Pastor Sean, I will not be offended. He was a great cousin. But I'll never forget going to his house because he lived with his dad And his dad and he used to like to make fun of the fact that I was scared of the dark. And so every time I would sleep in the big bed with Uncle Chuck, little five-year-old boy, and my cousin, Sean, they would make me turn off the light in his great big bedroom. And then they'd make me, and they would just laugh because I'd have to run to the bed and jump in. And then, next thing you know, my uncle, I know this now, but back then he would even scratch on the back of the bedpost while it was dark after I got there because I was scared of the dark. Now, I do want to say to you, I loved Christmas. Do you know why? Because it's only at Christmas that in every single room there were, guess what? lights. In fact, you never had to worry about the dark, and so Christmas was a paradise for a little kid like me, because there were lights on the window outside, which of course those lights would bring light to the inside, and there were lights on the inside, there were Christmas trees, and and lights beamed off the ornaments. It was amazing. See, Christmas is a paradise for a kid that is scared of the dark, because it's filled with light. Now, here's what I want to say to you. What is true physically is also true spiritually. If you would just indulge me the metaphor, because Christmas has the spiritual power to shed life on every part of your life. God wants to bring light into your life. Well, what does the light do? Well, if you just write this down, The light shows you how you can begin to live in a world without fear. Without fear. Now, it's interesting because you go back to the prophet Isaiah. He's talking about the people of Israel. He's talking about many of the bordering nations. And what fear is mentioned? Well, actually, if you study the passage, you'll know it's the fear of death. Notice again the scripture. Let's look at it one more time. It says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And What kind of darkness is this? Well, you say, well, pastor, it doesn't really tell us what kind of darkness it is. But if you look, you're going to see the same thing repeated twice in a row. Again, I've already said it. It says they're walking in darkness, but on those living in a land of deep darkness. Now, what I want to say to you today is this is what's called a Hebrew 
parallelism. And in Hebrew, what this literally means is, what the Hebrew writer is trying to say is, this fear, this darkness, it's actually called a death darkness. It's the repetition. What does it mean? It means all human beings live in the shadow of death. In fact, your translation of the Bible might say the shadow of death. Or if I could just put it another way, it says simply this. All human beings live with the fear of death. And you can write that down. With the fear of death. What, what, what this is saying is, is that death casts a shadow on everything in life. In fact, I would say to you today that the greatest struggle that you have or that I have in living life is death. And I know some of you would say, well, wait a minute. We're living a long time now. I don't worry about death and and, and, of course, back then they were worried about death because back then everybody died. But you say to me, but things have changed. We're living longer. And that's true. But I just want to say to you, have you noticed that the death rate has not changed? It's not improved. How many people die? One in one people. I'm certain in the last couple of years you probably know people that have died. But I do want to say there is something that has changed especially in Western civilization, and that's this. More than ever before, human beings, again, I'm going to speak at least for Western civilization, we have much less security about what happens after we die. In fact, if we want to talk about what the shadow of death really is, more than the fear of death today, it has to do in Western civilization about the fear of what actually happens when you die. That's the fear, the shadow of death. Now, guys, this is a fascinating thing, and I want you to think about this historically and sociologically because we are the first civilization, Western civilization is the first civilization in history that has lost its consensus. We have lost our certainty. Is there anything after death? Listen to me. Every other civilization that has ever been believed that after we died, there would be another world. In fact, if they died early, it was okay because all other cultures believed that, yes, this life is hard, this life is brutish, it's nasty, it's cruel, but it's okay. Life is short. In other words, if you had a disease in any other civilization, you had cholera and you were going to die, you didn't really worry that you were going to die because you knew there was life to come. And you knew that that other life was going to be glorious, or you thought it probably would be. In fact, most people in every other civilization thought that after they died, regardless of the religion, they would have more fulfillment. They would have more love. They would have more glory and joy than they had in this life. So as a result, in all those other places, if people back then were dropping dead early by a plague or by a disease, well, it wasn't as shattering because they weren't as dominated by the fear of what happens after. It didn't strike them the same way. But guys, it is so different today. Here's our problem. This is your and my problem in our culture. We have this feeling or this belief that we have to cram everything into this life. In fact, if I could say it this way, this is the third fear that I would allude to. It is the fear that we're not going to get everything we want out of this life. Because we have an uncertainty of where we're going to go. Even Christian people are sad when there is a death, knowing that paradise comes, knowing that we're at the hand of Jesus. You ask them, are you ready to go? No, no, I'm not ready to go. Because there is something in our culture that we feel this need, this sense that we have to make everything count. For them, the shadow of death had to do with, in the ancients, it had to do with they're hoping they've lived good enough that they can have a good life after. But for us, it's more of the fear of, does life really go on? It has more to do with, and if it does, what will that life be like. And the ancients, you know, they they would just be worried, well, am I deserving of punishment or am I deserving of glory? Am I going to get retribution or am I going to get reward? But now today, people struggle with the meaningless of it all. Because if there's nothing after, if life doesn't go on, if learning doesn't go on, if there's no judgment, imagine it. 
If in eternity there is no evaluation, if there's no progression, if there's no continued learning, I'm going to ask you, what's it all for anyway? You know, there was a commentator, this is an old book, but it it came back to my mind. His name was Ernest Becker, and uh, he wrote a book called The Denial of Death. Now, this is way back in 1975. I mean, look at that stash. Those are coming back. But he won a Pulitzer Prize for this book, The Denial of Death. And in the book, he makes this incredibly good scholarly case about what I'm talking about. Now, I'll paraphrase, but here's what he says. He says, in all civilizations, he says, sex, talking about current civilizations, he says, in all civilizations, sex, money, and politics have been important, but only in Western civilization are sex, money, and power all important. There has never been a culture like ours in which sex and romance and physical beauty are as absolutely obsessed upon as they are in our culture. There has never been an obsession with beauty like there is in our culture today. There has never been an obsession with romance like there is in our culture today or love. We have never been a more materialistic culture. This obsession that we have with accruing and getting and pleasure. Why? It's the shadow of death. Because if this life is all you have, you've got to cram all your significance into what you're doing now. Your happiness, it's all dependent. Do you guys remember, my brother used to have this poster up in his room when he was, uh, he's like 12 years older than me. But it was this old beer called Schlitz. Anybody know this? Boy, you're dating yourself if you do. And the poster said, you only go around once in life, you have to grab all, you know, you have to grab the gusto while you can. You have to have sex, you have to have romance, you have to have power. Listen, in our culture, this is why we're frantic, because we think, boy, we got to get it all in. But I want to contrast something for you. You might be living just this way. And you have a fear of what's going to happen when you die. I just want to contrast, though, for you, a different way of thinking. For example, I want to show you the picture of this guy. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How many of you heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Dietrich Bonhoeffer nowadays is a hero, and and rightly so. Whenever he's mentioned in the press, he's a hero. There's been movies made about him. Books, many books have been written about him. Essays, I encourage you to look up this guy's life. He's a bona fide hero, and rightly so. Dietrich was a German Lutheran minister. He was a minister for the Church of Germany. And in the Church of Germany, when Hitler rose to power, a lot of people, you know, they just sort of fit in with the Nazi program. You know, they just went along because it's what you did. They didn't want to get into trouble. But Bonhoeffer wouldn't do it. And when Hitler rose to rose to power, what you need to understand is that Bonhoeffer wasn't even in Germany. He was teaching out of Germany, and everybody said to him, you know, he had this great job teaching, everybody said to him, don't go back, don't go to Germany, Hitler's coming into power, it's too dangerous, don't go back. You know what he said? He said, and I quote, I have to be a part of this. These are my people, and I have to go back and be a part of this. So he went back to Germany, and he resisted. And he protested, and he was executed. Why? Well, some of you, when I say why, why would he do that? He was out of Germany, he could have lived in peace. Why would he go back? Some of you say, well, he's a hero. He's made of sterner stuff than most of us, you know. He just, he had that about him. And I just say to you, that's not the reason. And it's not what he would say. See, he knew he would be executed, but just before he was executed, he wrote this to a friend, and I'm not going to put this on the screen, but I want for you to hear it. Here's what he wrote to his friend. He said, death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. He did not fear death. In fact, that statement reminds me of that old writer, George Herbert, who said, death used to be an executioner, but because of the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, death has just become a gardener. Because all death can do is plant me in his love and make me come up in ways like I'd never dreamed. 
And what Bonhoeffer is saying, see, what's happened here, guys, is a light has dawned on Bonhoeffer. Everybody else is so frantic. Everybody else is so worried. They've got to get everything out of this life. But in spite of the frantic darkness all around him, Bonhoeffer believes in Jesus Christ. He believes that Jesus Christ is from another world. He believes that Jesus Christ is born into this world and that he died on a cross to pay the debt human race owes to justice. So that when we die, believing in him, we don't need to have any fear. We don't have to fear death in any way. Do you know why Bonhoeffer wasn't afraid of death? I'm going to tell you exactly why. Bonhoeffer didn't care about comfort. Bonhoeffer didn't care about affluence. He wasn't striving for power. He wasn't striving for pleasure or sex or romance. His, his identity was not wrapped up in this life. He just didn't care. So the people are saying to him, you've made it. You can be successful. You can be a professor outside of Germany. Don't go back there. He said, I don't want to not go back. I have to go back. Why? Because the shadow of death didn't fall on him. Now, guys, you say, what's the point of this? Look, this is why the angel of the Lord, whenever you read the Christmas story, the angels of the Lord are appearing and they're saying things like, fear not. Fear not. For behold, I bring you, what kind of news? Of great joy that should be for all people. And if you're a person that believes in Jesus Christ and has entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ, a light is dawned in your life. Jesus, who is the Christ, was born in a manger, and that means this world is not all there is. Now, that's how you deal with the dark. That's what Isaiah is saying here. And it gives us a reason to have joy and to celebrate no matter what's going on in the world. I don't have to worry about what, there are so many people that are so worried about what's going on in the world. Friend, I'm gonna tell you, I'm not that worried. God has everything under control, even if it meant my death. I live on. In fact, I think it was D.L. Moody that said, he knew he was gonna die, and he said, soon you will read I am dead. He took out an advertisement in the paper that said, don't believe it for a minute. He said, I will be more alive than ever before. It's the shadow of death. Now, the second thing that Isaiah teaches us is not just to have deal with the, how to deal with the dark and what the light does for a person, but it tells us how to open a gift. So if you read the text, you'll see that the fact that this light comes into your life and it makes you like Bonhoeffer, but what you have to do, you have to receive the gift. In fact, what this text is showing you, if you'd write this down, is it shows you that a gift must not be earned. It can't be earned. It has to be received. The gift shows that it must be received, not earned, because that's what a gift is. In fact, if you study it, the language all through this text, it, it shows you the difference between gift versus merit. You guys want to do a little Bible study for just a minute? Everybody say, I do. Okay, here we go. Watch this. Look at what it says in verse 4. It says, for as in the day of whose defeat? As in the day of Midian's defeat. Now, by the way, this is a reference to the time when God delivered the Israelites from the Midianites. And they did it through Gideon. It's in the book of Judges. Now, God made Gideon send his entire army home. Before God would ever defeat the Midianites, he said, Gideon, I don't want you to use an army. Send them home. And he did that to show them, write this down, this is important. He did that to show them that salvation never comes through human power, but it only comes through God's grace and intervention. Because here's why, guys, as you write this down, you could never earn it. You could never receive the gift of God's grace and be delivered on your own strength. Why? Well, because look at what it says here. This is how he illustrates it. Isaiah says in verse five, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for what? Burning, will be fuel for the fire. In other words, what he's saying is, I don't need your strength. I don't need your armor. 
I don't need your works. I don't need anything that you would do to win the battle. You only need me. That's what he's saying. Why? Because he goes on. He says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And all governing will be on whose shoulders? His shoulders. And Isaiah, this Isaiah is saying the deliverance of this son, this child who is born, is everything that you need. And again, all governing will rest on his shoulders. And what he's saying here ultimately is, says, anything that you can do, it's destined for fire, it's destined for burning. Why? Because of this child. Now, who is this child? Who is this son? I just want to close with some thoughts here. And I want to make this very practical for you. But I want to tell you about this son and what comes with him as a gift if you receive him or believe on him. And this gives you absolutely every reason to celebrate. Are you ready? Here we go. What comes with the gift of the son if you believe in him? Here's what Isaiah is saying. Write this down. He's saying that what you get with Jesus is you get a saving God that always meets you where you are. You get a saving God that always meets you where you are. Why? Because, guys, he says about this God, he says that he is a mighty God. That's the term he uses. Now, what's the word mighty? The word mighty is the Hebrew word gabor. You know what it means? It means that he is the hero. He is the champion. He is the knight in shining armor. He is the one that comes to save people. He is the hero that meets you at your level. What he's saying is the mighty God, the everlasting God, was born in flesh. First John puts it this way. You got to get this. First John says, in the beginning was the word. The word is a reference to God. In fact, the word is, is in the Greek logos or logos. And what it means is the rationale for life, the reason all things exist, the logic of life, every reason we live was there in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, notice. And the word, what does it say? Was God. He not only was with God, but he was God. And the word became what? And made his dwelling among us, and we have seen the glory manifest, the glory of the one and only, the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What he's saying is, yes, he came physically, he came literally. Do you know this same writer that wrote this gospel, John? You read it there, John 1 and 1.14. He also said, look, guys, what we're telling you is the truth. You've got to understand this. This mighty God came down to us to meet us where we are. He is the one who meets you where you are always. He doesn't make you come up to his level. Some of you were under this belief that God is making you come to his level before he accepts you. And I've got news for you. You're never going to get there. You will never get to the level where you think God is going to accept you. You will always have a deficit. Some of you say, well, I don't want to pray. I don't want to go to the lounge. I don't want to be baptized because I'm just not good enough yet. You are never going to be good enough. You are never going to be able to do enough. You will never. How many of you pray enough right now? Come on, show me. How many of you guys are prideful enough to say that you pray enough? <laughs> Nobody prays enough. Nobody reads the Bible enough. Nobody's good enough. We can't do enough to earn God's favor. Some of us are under the misconception that we think God is pleased with us because we keep up with our church attendance. Because we pay our tithes. Because we serve the poor or the needy. Or whatever it is that we do, and I'm saying to you, God says, no, 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 all your armor is destined for fire. All your strength is destined for burning. Send the army home. I am the only one that delivers you. It rests in me and me alone. And so what John is saying here is, God meets you where you are, and he says, look, he actually came. That which we have seen with our what? That which we have looked at with our, that which we have touched proclaiming the word of life, the logos again. We have seen it. We testified to it. We saw him. We felt him. Now, guys, somebody says to me, whenever I bring this up, 
some Christian people or, or some people, they just say to me, well, why are you putting all this stress on whether or not it really happened literally, that he had to come, we had to see him? In fact, some of you would say, does it really matter whether Jesus was born? Does it really matter whether he was born of a virgin? Does it really matter whether these things happened historically or not? See, you say, some of you, you say, what, what, what the Christmas story is really about is, the Christmas story is just telling me how I should live, that I should just live a life of love, that I should just live a life of good works. And that's really all I need to know if I just live a life of hope or a life of generosity. And so you'd say to me, doctrine doesn't matter whether he was born a virgin or whether he came. You'd say the deity of Christ doesn't matter or the incarnation. You'd say, no, Shane, doctrine doesn't matter. All that matters is that you live a good life. It's the golden rule. Now, here's the irony. If you're here and you say that, if you're here and you say to me, doctrine doesn't matter, if you say to me what really matters is that you just live a good life, the irony is you've just created a doctrine. Do you see that? If you say to me, what Jesus, him actually coming, him actually being born a virgin, him actually being here, this thing about Christmas, that doesn't matter. All that matters is what I do. You've just created a doctrine. You've created a doctrine about God. You've created a doctrine about man. You've created a doctrine about human nature. And you've just said that your doctrine is right. No, of course it matters. Does it matter whether the story's happened? Yeah, of course it does. Because what God is saying if it doesn't come through me, you don't get in. You say to me, here's how I must live so that I'm saved. And guys, I'm saying to you, Christianity is actually the complete opposite. Every other religion in the world, look at all the founders. You look at Buddha, you look at Confucius, you look at Muhammad, and they're all going to tell you, listen to me, you study their lives, and some of you would say, well, that didn't really happen like this, and that didn't happen. I'm telling you, for those religions, it really doesn't matter. Because all that matters in those religions are if you follow the teaching and live up to the teaching and do what the founder said, you'll get to go to heaven. It's about works. Christianity is the opposite. In Christianity, it's what Jesus does that saves you. In Christianity, it's not how you live, it's how he actually lived. It had to happen historically. He had to come. That's why he says, Isaiah says, the hope for humanity is this. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. Governing will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Listen to me. He had to be born. He had to live. He had to die on the cross. It's not just a nice story. Why? Because he's not just born. He's born for you. He's not just living. He lives for you. It's not just Jesus Christ dying. He's dying for us in our place as our substitute. For to us, a child gets born. This is why the book of Ephesians, for those of you that would think, no, I have to be a good enough person to earn God's favor. I have to live a good enough kind of life. This is why Ephesians chapter two, one of the earliest scriptures I ever memorized, it says it this way. For it is by grace that you have been through your Trust, pisteo, it's not just head knowledge or pistos, it's not just head knowledge, it's not just, well, I believe in Abraham Lincoln, good for you, that's not doing anything for you. It's trust, it's not just belief, but it also is, it's belief with more, it's trust, it's faith. I put my faith in you, you have been saved through your faith, what are you putting faith in? That what Jesus did is enough. It's not Jesus plus what I do. It's not Jesus and I better pay my tithes. It's not Jesus and I better live this way. It's my faith in Jesus through faith. And I'm gonna say to you, some of you, you have trouble believing that because it takes the control right out of your hands. Some of us have trouble believing that because when we wrap it up and it's all about our works, then we control the dynamic. And I'm saying to you, it takes a lot of humility to say, Jesus, it's only you. You say, well then, pastor, why pay my tithes? Why live a good life? Why live holy? I'll tell you why. Because he's changed me. Because I want to please him. Because I'm in love with Jesus Christ. And if you've come to have faith in him, you'll fall in love with him too. And he'll change your life. 
He says, this is not from yourselves. It is the what? The gift of God. It's about opening a gift. See, he's a saving God that meets you right where you are. You'll never be able to do it on your own. But it also says, write this down, he is an enduring God that loves you intimately. That's what Isaiah is saying here. See, because even though he's a great God, he wants to come close. He wants intimacy. He doesn't just want to be a concept. Do you understand? Some of you say, well, I know about God. Well, it's, God doesn't want you to know about him. God wants you to know him. He wants to be your father. He wants to be your brother. He wants to be your friend. He wants to be your lover. You say, well, where do you see that? Well, right here, look. He says he's not just mighty God, but he's what? He's everlasting what? Father. He wants to be your Abba. He wants to be your Papa. He wants to be your Daddy. Now, there's something I want to clue in here. You notice he says everlasting. Some of you today, you've come in discouraged because you're under the perception that God's done with you. And I'm saying to you, no, no, no. See, my God is how lasting? Everlasting. Ever enduring. His place as my father, not just a concept, but intimately knowing me, is ever enduring. There is no sin you could do that outlasts his love for you and his place as your father. Here's a God, you read the gospels, he's gentle. Here's a God who takes hold of a woman's hand who's lost her son and he, he says, don't cry, he loves you. Here's a God who takes the hand of a little girl who's dead. And I love this scripture. It says, holding her hand, he said to her, uh, Talitha Kaom, which means, you know what it means literally? It means, honey, get up. <laughs> Just a sweet, loving God. Here's a God who cries out on a cross that he is forsaken so that you wouldn't be forsaken. Guys, don't you see? Here is a God who has literally moved heaven and earth so that you could get close to him. So that he could be real to you. And what he does is he sends his Holy Spirit to live within you so that you could know him so intimately. Do you realize the intimacy that he wants to have with you? Why? Because he's a saving God that will always meet you where you are but he's also an enduring God that loves you intimately. But he's not just those things. What's Isaiah saying? What's in this gift? He says, well, he's also, this is what brings light to you. That I hope the light would dawn on you today that number three, he is a providing God that sees every one of your needs. All of them. There's not a need that you have that God doesn't know about. In fact, the scripture says his name is not just mighty God, and it's not just everlasting Father, but it says his name is also the what? Prince of Peace. Now, do you know what peace, the word peace is? It's the word shalom. You know what it means? It means full economic, spiritual, and physical flourishing. It means that Jesus doesn't just want to help you with your problems on the inside, but he wants to help you with everything about your life. Now think about that. Here's what I need you to understand. Christmas is a celebration that God came into this material world, so the material world must matter to God. It matters. I could put it this way. At Christmas, God moved into a very bad neighborhood in order to spruce it up. It matters. God comes into our life and he begins the rehabilitation of our life. In fact, this is why everybody should be doing the same thing to one degree or another. This is why we do outreach. Because if God moves into the bad neighborhood and says, I want to do everything I could do to shape it up. I want to shape up your life. If you would just trust me and live by my principles then he says, as people, I want you to go into other people's lives and start shaping them up and helping them. That's why, by the way, I love Christmas time because it reminds me of those principles like never before that we're to be going out and loving people. 
In fact, I, I thought it was so cool that um, this last weekend, so many of you were involved in these Christmas outreaches to uh, the community of Fresno where hundreds of families were served. And uh, it, it, gosh, it was an awesome time where we gave presents away for the toys at Toby Lawless and did all those, those outreaches together. I mean, it was cool. These were all related to our peace plan. But Christmas reminds you of that. In fact, in our PowerPoint, you guys will never believe, we were telling you how we need toys, we need toys, we need toys, but you, gave, you guys gave just the right amount that, uh, check this out, it was like the loaves and the fishes um, at the end. There, do you have a picture of that box in here somewhere uh, in, the, in your PowerPoint? Can, can you pull that up for them? You guys have that? Oh, they don't have that apparently, so, so that's fine. But there was literally one box left over. Uh, you can skip past this, but, but just show them that box for me, would you? Do you have that box? Okay, forget about it, guys. <laughs> the whole point is, is that God says, listen, your salvation, it's not just an individual thing. It's, it's, not, just a, it, it's not just a personal thing for you. It's meant to be a corporate thing. Your new birth, your inner peace, it also should mean like neighborhood renewal. It also means like, because see, eventually shalom means that God is going to come and he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to bring righteousness and justice. He's here to get rid of poverty and violence and injustice and war. He's here to get rid of disease. And eventually, the king is going to do that. And it says in Isaiah, of the greatness of his government and peace... There will be no end. He is going to reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness forever. Scripture says, let's read this next one together. It says, here we go. If you just throw it up on the screen for everybody. It says, and my God will meet all your according to his riches and glory, is what it says. And my God shall supply all your what? Not your greeds, but he will meet your needs as you trust him. Why? Because he's a saving God that meets you where you are. He's an enduring God that loves you intimately. He's a providing God that sees all your needs. And then finally, if you just write this down, what Isaiah is saying here is he's a personal God that brings you joy. And what happens is, is Isaiah's pointing this out, this light that has dawned on how you can handle the dark. He says, now you're free to be emotional. Why? By the way, I could do a whole sermon just on this. But it has to do with this idea that he's not only mighty and everlasting and the prince of peace, but it says his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. By the way, you know what wonder means? Wonder means beauty. <laughs> wonder means joy. Christmas means Jesus Christ, not something remote, but he comes into our lives as a counselor, a wonderful counselor that fills us with joy. I heard the story about a pastor who once owned a home. He lived in Philadelphia, and he said it wasn't long till after he owned the home that he came to realize that he had a water problem in the basement, and it was a big water problem and uh, there was this heavy dew that was outside and he would notice that whenever there was a heavy dew literally there was water in the basement but even when there was a drought even in a summer drought there was still mildew it was always damp it was always mildew so he was like well I gotta figure this out it stinks to be a homeowner that's always damp so he starts talking to the neighbors and he starts doing his diligence and the neighbors said oh you're new they said, don't you realize that there is a subterranean river that flows literally underneath all of our homes? And it's just a few inches from the foundation of your house. He says, we always have water problems in these homes. We always have mildew problems. It doesn't matter what the weather is. It could be a drought because we have a river that's flowing underneath. Here's what I want to say to you. To know God as wonderful counselor, you know what it means? It means that you always have a river flowing underneath. And what is really sad for a little house is really wonderful for you. 
because it allows God to come inside of you. And no matter what the weather, he's given you everything that you need. This is why Romans says it this way. It says, and may the God of hope fill you with all what? Joy and peace as you trust him so that you would overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Guys, what if, regardless of the circumstances, what if regardless of the weather, what if everything in your life, what if you had this subterranean river of joy that even when there was death in your life, even when there was sickness, even when there was failures of marriages and the loss of jobs, what if you had this subterranean river that allowed you to be filled with joy anyway? Because you knew that if you lost everything else, you had Jesus Christ. And that if you open that box and open it as a gift, he says, I'll change your life. You don't have to earn it because he's a saving God that'll meet you right where you are right now. In your sin, in your struggle. You don't have to worry about wearing God out with habitual sin because he's an enduring God. He's going to outlast you. your struggle you can know he wants to take care of your life because scripture says he's a providing God and he wants to care for you but he's also a personal God that can give you the meet the deepest needs of your heart and no matter where you are you may be watching online and that's true for you 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 may be out in our our Kerman party out there watching and that's true for you You may be here right now, and that's true for you. The point is, God wants you to be filled with a joy and a jubilation that really only comes from knowing Him. He doesn't want you to fear death. He doesn't want you to fear what happens after death. And He doesn't want you to fear or have an existential crisis that you've got to fit everything in the now. Now, God wants to move in your life. Father, Would you bless each person that's here that they would know your truth and know your gospel? The reason that we could have joy, unspeakable, unfathomable, and total joy. Would you give that to each one? Thank you for your shed blood and broken body on the cross. It's because of what you did. It's the life you lived that you came. You were born to die. And it's because of that that we can have life. And we thank you for it. So God, we surrender to you. In Jesus' name.